I'd like to do this evening is <clears throat> build on Michael's talk a little bit. Michael's talk last night on the four foundations of mindfulness, which I think was helpful for people uh, in at least the groups that I was in, in uh, taking choiceless awareness out of the clouds, helping us see that it's not an exotic, uh, strange, impractical approach to, at all. <clears throat> First, a few odds and ends. Um, I got a couple of notes. The uh, Dharma poem, Free and Easy, that I read this morning. Some of you know I read it on every retreat. And I've been doing it for a number of years. And uh, the notes were, the, the sense of the notes was something like, enough already. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. We've heard this uh, free and easy again and again and again. Uh, why do you keep reading it? Uh, so usually if there's a note or two on a certain theme, it's uh, more than a, a few people who have had the same thought. Uh, so my answer to those of you who have that question is, have you done it yet? <laughs> if you have, then I'll stop. There were some uh, aspects of the practice of uh, choiceless awareness that I'd like to attempt to clarify a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I put all of what I'm about to say now, and I think the thrust of the Buddhist teaching is about self-knowledge. And some version of self-knowledge exists in every culture, having the, either in the philosophic, religious, or just a, an interest that human beings have on what is this, who am I? That's, in a sense, the fundamental spiritual question. One area of confusion. <clears throat> that choiceless awareness, uh, if it's hardened into a method, uh, in some cases, people hear it and attempt to practice it uh, as if they have a butterfly net and they're trying to catch that moment and then there's one and then there's another one. Uh, and so some of the questions seem to have in back of it, uh, do you just keep you know, uh, this object, that object, over here, over there? Uh, not really. First of all, uh, you don't have to go searching for anything. The key to it is to relax. You can use the breathing to help you do that or not, but to relax and to receive your own experience, whatever that experience is. Now, uh, I think life itself or the mind itself makes it quite clear. For example, sometimes things are buzzing by very rapidly, one after the other. You can't possibly uh, aim and direct mindfulness and stay with that object and then the next one and the next one uh, would defeat the whole purpose. But what you can do is stay clear and experience what's happening, that this is all happening. Sometimes a very powerful object arrives in town and it dominates consciousness. It's not a question of having to deliberate to decide what to attend to. It's already decided. It's gotten you. Um, sometimes the attention quite naturally is panoramic and a, a global sense, all-inclusive sense of things naturally. And at other times, it is more pinpointed. Um, when the practice ripens, what naturally comes out of it is actually the emphasis starts to shift when the mind starts becoming very quiet. And I, uh, if we have time, we'll go into that this evening. Uh, not so much on the objects, but on that which knows the objects. That is, the silence itself is knowing, as I'm using the word silence. And at that point, that would be where you would rest. And of course, things are just happening. They're coming into that field of knowing, and they get known as they appear and as they disappear. Um, question, another uh, aspect of choiceless awareness, of what possible relevance is it for daily life? I think 
Michael made it very, very clear that all choiceless awareness is, is uh, the mind-body process, and then seeing the lawfulness that undermine, underlies this process of mind and body. Uh, being in the present moment is another way of putting it, here and now. Uh, when we get to uh, daily life, uh, let's stay with, should you be with a specific object or a broader field? Let me give you an example from my own practice some years ago, and it's happened many, many times since. Walking along the Charles River in Cambridge, and it's a beautiful day, and quite naturally, a all-inclusive kind of panoramic attention. I wasn't focusing on anything in particular. There was just an openness to the, the river, the sky, people, uh, the grass. Sometimes something would become a bit more prominent. Sometimes it, it would be more of a sense of the whole. Uh, quite naturally, it was a very joyful, a sense of walking in the midst of it. And then there was an accident. There was a car turned over, and there was a body lying in the road on um, the highway that is right alongside the river. At that point, it's not that you have to, uh, while you, you head towards the body, sustain this wide-angle lens and hear the birds chirping and the sky is blue, the grass is green. Uh, it becomes quite naturally zoom lens, very, very focused. And you don't need to take a workshop or get instructions on that. Uh, life tells you. I mean, so your attention is very, very focused. and everything else naturally is of no interest. And it keeps going like that. And I think each situation, there's an intelligence built into it, sort of what is correct action in this particular situation. And quite related to that, inseparable from it, is what is correct awareness in it. The, uh, if you keep practicing, uh, there's a time to be very, very concrete and specific, and another time when you're much more taking in the whole, and they're not to be set off against. They don't have to be set up, set off against each other, competing with each other. Um, in terms of modes of practice, they're both useful skills. The ability to put your attention on one thing and keep it there for as long as you wish to is invaluable in life. But it's also helpful to have to be a whole person doing what you're doing. Now I'm talking about daily life. Uh, a few of the questions implied a kind of fatalistic passivity because here we've been talking about choiceless awareness. You're just sitting, and we have, in a sense, the, the protection. I, I was going to call it luxury, but I, I don't see it that way. I see it as an essential uh, re-education of our minds. But the work here is, is to sit and to see what's there. In other words, to be with your experience as it emerges and disappears without any agenda. And that can sound fatalistic. But really, what's being emphasized is being in touch with what is. We've been saying that since the retreat began. If it's the breath, that's what is. And intimate. There's nothing separating you from what you're attending to. You're fully receiving it. Now, what might separate you? Typically, it's, of course, thinking something between you and what it is you're seeing. Uh, you're looking at a tree, but you have thoughts about going home. You're not really seeing the tree, or it's kind of a flat, um, not, it's, un it's not alive. And then if the thoughts quiet down, suddenly there's a, a real tree there, and it's quite, quite different experientially. Uh, but even here, this is a, a stupid example. I've used it before, uh, but just to make the point. Let's say we're practicing choiceless, choiceless awareness in this hall, and a fire breaks out. It's not that you sit here feeling it getting hotter, <laughs> feeling anxiety well up and fear, seeing flames starting to streak. Uh, the person who's really in touch with the moment might, I think, would be the person who would immediately, the correct action flows from being in touch with the facts of the situation. It's just here we don't have to do anything in the hall. Our only job is just to sit and watch, so it's excellent training. But when we leave IMS, and even as we've been, been as has been mentioned, 
in the daily life of IMFs, it's a full life. It's people living out their life together, doing things. And if you're in touch with the facts, then you have a better chance of your action being adequate, of it being a, an intelligent, compassionate action. Not something you even plan out or think out, but the mind is clear. Um, it's very, very practical skill. Because when we leave here and go home, uh, all a choiceless awareness means is that you're in touch with the way things are from moment to moment. Now, if, if at home you have a scheduled life and you do everything, at ex I know there's probably no one like this, exactly the same time. You get up at 6.30 in the morning and at 6.08 you're in the shower and at 6.20 uh, you're doing yoga and then at 6.33 you're uh, doing your sitting and then uh, breakfast is and then you catch the 722 train. Let's say your life is totally scheduled and every day is the same, kind of Groundhog Day, if you've seen that movie. Okay. But your experience is different inside. It's not about the outer events, that is the way you're experiencing the very same uh, event, even if you do it a million times. And so it's being in touch with that. And the, everything keeps changing in daily life. The situations change. And have you noticed how much uncertainty there is? Okay, we're getting training in that. When you learn to sit and to be with whatever turns up, what you're practicing is how to be with whatever turns up. That's literally what we're doing. Now, is life outside of IMS or in the hall at IMS so different? Think there are a lot of surprises in life. Things are impermanent, for sure. And they're also uncertain. They don't change necessarily in the ways in which we would predict or even desire. And so practice should help us live in the real world, a world that is constantly changing in ways that are not under our control. So to me, that's extremely practical. As more and more you develop this skill, uh, it helps you in situations uh, to see clearly what is needed and to act correctly. Let me give you a couple of examples from my own practice. Both have to do with my parents. Uh, when they were, w one was, uh, my mother was dying, and this was very close to her death. And she was um, paralyzed for the most part. Her mind was quite clear, and she had one free arm, and her hands, she had some strength, not much in her, in her hands. Nothing else, she could barely, a little bit of a gesture on her face, but she was quite there. And the whole family was with her day after day, and we were with her. And, um, at one point, and she was really suffering, she was, her breathing was quite belabored, and she was fighting to stay alive. And the doctors kept saying, well, it's just a matter of hours, and days would go by. Uh, I checked into a, a motel because I was called across the street from the hospital uh, and told that, you know, your mother doesn't have very long. Well, 10 days later, she was still there. And really, it was exhausting and very, very painful uh, to just see how strong her urge to stay alive was. And so I gave her a super-duper Dharma wrap at one point. I'm holding her hand and... Uh, uh, she's uh, breathing this way, and I, I give her something that, you know, Buddhism 1.1. 1 .1. Uh, Mom, uh, your body has served you well. She was 90. Your body has served you well, but time is it's now tired. Uh, everything is, uh, w is wearing out. Uh, you don't have to fight so hard. It's okay. Just let go, you know, and all those kind of words that I'm sure you're familiar with. Every time I used anything that smacked of let go, I was holding her hand, her hand became tighter and tighter. Here's someone who seemed to have no strength. I thought she was going to crush my hand. <laughs> she didn't, and she was annoyed with what I was saying. <laughs> and the Dharma talk got better and better. <laughs> and she hated it more and more. Finally, um, I was in touch with my reactions, which was one of frustration. You know, these teachings are correct. 
But they weren't right. So I switched over to Metta, channel Metta, that everyone loves you, you've been a loving person, uh, and we were all there lo uh, loving her, and uh, you've had a good life, full of love, and, and suddenly her hand relaxed, a little bit of a smile came. Uh, now, the only reason I got it is because I was paying attention. I could have gone on forever, it seemed. Uh, and I started to feel my own frustration and inadequacy that is what I was saying, seemed to be having the reverse effect of what I was trying to accomplish. And as soon as I saw that reaction, remember what was emphasized a few evenings ago? Uh, Self-knowledge in action, self-knowing in action. Uh, it, it, to really make that something effective, uh, we have to re-educate ourselves so that our reactions, as being mindful of our reactions, are at least as important as the situation or person that is stimulating the reaction. By and large, we don't do that. We have to start to understand that, that the freedom, a lot of freedom comes from that. It's self-knowledge in action in the midst of life. And as you get better in the, at that, the, the reaction, which is mechanical, mine was just coming from uh, a Dharma machine, a well-trained, well-oiled Dharma machine. Okay. And it was mechanical. It wasn't really attuned. My mother was, is not a Vipassana meditator. She couldn't be furthest from it. I would say she's a natural meta bunny. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> uh, she was, yeah. Like she once heard us all, and then a few of us talking about meta, and she had a kind of a Jewish accent. Uh, meta, meta, what is all this meta you're talking about? So I said, well, it's loving kindness, sending love to yourself and to other people. And she said, oh, I've been doing that all my life. What's the, you know, what, what's the big deal? She said, every day I send love to you and your sister, to Aunt Jenny, you know, to this one. And I said, yeah, that's it, Mom. All right. Okay. Okay. With my father... Uh, he had Alzheimer's, and he was also, uh, he, was, he died at 90, he was, he was in his 89th year or so. And my father was a very generous man before he got Alzheimer's, and, uh, so much so that my mother had problems with him, because there was a period when I was growing up, we were very, very poor, and he was always the sport and Mr. Generosity, sometimes a bit of a show-off, and we had very little money, but uh, that didn't stop him from giving nothing away uh, to whoever was there. And... He was known for that. It was one of his features of being a very generous person. And suddenly, he's in this home, nursing home, and he becomes stingy and a skinflint and just worried about every penny. And uh, we were just, we couldn't, uh, we, it was just a shock to us, uh, just something, a, t a total change in character. And he kept saying things like, look, I need some cash. You know, I reach into my pocket and all I, fear it, all I feel is my ass. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's what he said, I'm sorry. He you know, <laughs> says, can you get, give me $10, $5, give me some, so I can have something on me. Things going on. I said, but Dad, you don't need any money here. Everything is taken care of. Your every need is taken care of. And it was a really uh, a well-run and a kind uh, nursing home. And it didn't satisfy him. And visit after visit, this kept coming up. And it was strong. And the nurses got in on it. And they said, don't give it to him. Don't you dare give him that money. Because he'll just, he forgets about it. He'll flush it down the toilet. He'll leave it in his clothes. And he'll get lost in the laundry. And, uh, and we believed them. You know? And also, everyone else was saying that. Oh, no, no, no. Don't give it. And so, me too. The same thing. I wasn't giving it to him. And then I started to feel inside, something is off here because... We can't seem to satisfy him, and all the poor man wants is some, a piece of paper that says 10 on it, you know, and if he puts it in his back pocket, he's going to be a happy camper, you know. Uh, so why, wasn't we, why weren't we able to do that? Because we were very, very attached to the concept of money, uh, that this would be a waste of money, and, and as one nurse put it, we'd just be flushing it down the toilet. Don't give it to him. It's a complete waste of money. 
And it took me a while to let go of the conditioning, the conditioning which agrees with that, to suddenly realize, well, wait a minute, we're spending ten times that on drugs that don't do seem to have any effect whatsoever. And let, to give him ten dollars and that brings a smile on his face, what a bargain. So I did. And my family attacked me. The nurses thought I was an idiot, but my father was happy. Now, I don't care. I don't know what happened. But if he flushed it down the toilet, so what? <laughs> I mean, it was w well spent. So do you see how, what I'm getting at? But the clarity didn't come from the moon. It came from seeing lack of clarity. In other words, my, my reaction, which was conditioned, was a reaction. It's mechanical. As you tune into your reactions more and more, they're replaced by responses. And a response is different. You make space for something that is seeing the situation, and something comes out of that quiet that I would say often, if not always, is more appropriate, more intelligent, and more kind than our rehearsed actions or our conditioned actions that have been developed over a lifetime. Okay. Uh, I may never get to what I was. This was just the beginnings. Um, the Buddha said, in effect, the Buddha is saying, be a lamp, but not in effect, he says it, be a light unto yourself, be a lamp unto yourself. It's know thyself. You know, we, it's in the West as well. Uh, it's been, uh, it's in all the European cultures, it's in, in North America. Uh, it, I'm sure it was there before Socrates, but we, uh, we hear it a lot. Many, many people have gotten this as part of their education. And I would say that most human beings value that, to know yourself. And we call it self-knowledge. I'd like to suggest that I'm not sure it's all the same. That is what Socrates meant and what the Buddha meant and others. I, I don't, sometimes it doesn't sound like they're exactly the same. But they're going in the same direction. Like Socrates said, a life unexamined is a life not worth living. That's a pretty strong statement. I don't think the Buddha would disagree. Because the Buddha is saying that uh, so much of our suffering comes from the fact that we, there's a tremendous amount of self-delusion and self-deception. We don't understand ourselves. And so much suffering comes from that. Well, what would be the obvious medicine for that? Know yourself. Begin to see how you actually are living. Uh, but often the way it's discussed, it comes across as knowledge. That is, you pay attention and then you accumulate uh, you can fill up a book with your insights, in other words. I don't think that's quite the use of, of self-knowledge in the Buddhist sense. It's not accumulative. It's not filling up a book with your insights and notes about, that's just more about me and my story, starring me, uh, written by me, supporting actors me, directed by me, <laughs> produced by me. Uh, it's in the moment. It's non-accumulative. And that's why I prefer the term self-knowing. Uh, it's a verb. It's, you, it's, it's happening in this moment. There's a wakefulness, and there's a seeing and a knowing and a learning that happens in this moment. I think I gave a few examples. Now, that knowledge is useful in that moment. Now, if you then write it down in a book, then it becomes it's past. It's over. It doesn't mean you don't learn from the past, but it isn't the freshness of seeing a situation. And then out of that freshness, the learning is a, the, the, the brings with it action that is intelligent, that's wise. So I think that's more what the Buddha had in mind. Moreover, um, self-knowing doesn't only happen on the cushion. Uh, those of you who have practiced a fair amount, I, I don't know if you know that. I'll just tell you that for me it's pretty clear. I've done lots of long retreats, three-month retreats and longer, and tremendous self-knowing comes out of that. Anyone who's done it, uh, what we've been doing, haven't you learned something about yourself here? How can you not? It's just, mm, right in our face. Okay, so, and certain things seem to get learned on long retreats that are hard to learn uh, in, the, in, in action, when we're not sitting very much. It seems like 
a certain amount of calm and quiet enables us to finally tap certain deep areas of our existence. And in the tapping of those areas, uh, flushing out something that we need to know about ourselves that was, was there and is there and that we were not in touch with. And so, of course, that's why people go off and do long retreats. That's why they go to forests and caves and meditation centers and so forth. And they've been, it's been going on for a long time. But I've discovered that when I go back home, and then it's mainly interaction and relationship and jobs and school, um, family and whatever your life is, self-knowing is not reserved for the cushion or for silence, outer silence, because uh, the self reveals itself in action. If you want to learn about yourself, you don't only learn about it by uh, sitting down and taking a look, because that's essentially what the instructions are. You want to learn about yourself? Great. Sit down and take a look. It's going to all be right there. But when you get up and you also act, you're also, there's, there's teaching. Life is teaching you, if you're willing to see it. It's teaching you about yourself. It's showing you how you live. It's showing you what's inside, because the actions produce reveal something about us. We express ourselves even in a yogi job. We express and reveal ourselves. Okay, now I have found personally that some of the things, invaluable things I've learned on long retreats, they remain valuable, invaluable. But it didn't cover a lot of other things that come up when you're in the presence of another person. There are certain challenges that come from living with other people. We know this because we're so, it's so difficult to do, for the human race, that is. We have a hard time. We're not living with each other in such a good way. We haven't for a long time. So if that's so, if you're willing to pay attention, and that's what I meant the other evening, that the world exists to set us free, if you have that view, then life is the great teacher. All these situations are showing you things about yourself. The question is, do you want to take the course? The teachings are all there, nonstop, 24 hours a day. If you start paying attention, then the self-knowing comes out of that attention, and you can learn about yourself anywhere. It's not limited to any, any place, of course. Now, and choiceless awareness is simply being in touch with what? The first foundation, the body. Getting to know the body. Well, we're doing a lot of that here. Getting to know the body in the sense of seeing its impermanent and empty nature. That is, uh, the condition of the body, it seems so incredibly solid. But when you, the mind gets quiet, you can see that it's a field of energy that's constantly changing. Uh, and we kind of fixate and solidify it, reify it. And part of Vipassana practice, a large part, is getting to know that body, getting to know uh, the ways of the body, our particular body, from the inside, not theoretically. It's uh, experiential. The Buddha's uh, purpose, one of the main purposes of getting to know the body is so that we would free ourselves from attachment to it. That doesn't mean neglect it or not respect it or not use it, because you need to use a body if you're alive and you're better off if you take care of your body. But we tend to build self out of it. One of the big problems is, however the body goes, that's how we think we go. As the body ages, then we take it as we're aging. And the problems of aging, of sickness, and of finally of dying, uh, can be eased, if not solved, if we can see the difference between the natural law that affects all beings, all life, Bodies are no different than trees or, or plants or animals. They must age. If something is born, it must go through certain uh, stages. Just look around. It's everywhere. But why does the mind have to attach to that bodily condition and then make self out of it so that if the body is aging, we then turn ourselves into an old person and then uh, turn, go crazy over that? start fighting with age. There's now all these, uh, I, a magazine that gets sent to me unasked for. It's a, 
and they keep wanting me to subscribe, and it's to join them in the battle against aging. <laughs> yeah. I'm not in that war. <laughs> Wh why would I want to get in the war that I know I'm going to lose? <laughs> yeah. That's like uh, getting in a battle against the Himalaya Mountains or the ocean. Let's take on, let's, let's find ways to defeat the ocean. Uh, it's anti-aging. There's a whole movement. I'm interested in health. I'm interested in having as much vitality and as a clear mind as I can while this body is alive. And has aging for me been a smooth journey? Of course not. I've had to learn what I'm talking about. Some of the losses of capacity and function are poignant when you're used to a body that does certain things. And I see Matt here, sorry. To <laughs> you know, the body can be very, very highly trained and it can do all, Matt uh, ran the uh, marathon. You know that. Michael gave you a plug, Matt. <laughs> um, sorry, but it doesn't last forever. <laughs> <laughs> But you'll probably be doing it in the wheelchair or something. <laughs> so, you know. so why can't we become more harmonious with these different stages of life that are natural? And the Buddha offers not only the direct observation, but reflections on the different parts of the body, the body as elements, and of course, finally, the way the body dies and decomposes. That's all in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta that uh, Michael was talking about last time. So part of self-knowledge is to get to know our body to get to know it well, uh, to see its nature, but also to see its needs, what foods it needs to keep it healthy, uh, to keep the mind as clear and fresh as possible, how much sleep does it need, water, and so forth. Okay, Feelings, I think Michael went through in great detail last night. Uh, clearly, we have a feeling and we can make self out of it and suffer. and. Uh, the choiceless awareness or being in the moment is to know what you're feeling. Now that might sound obvious, but a lot of us don't know what we're feeling. Take the first noble truth. There is suffering. Uh, that seems to be one of the most obvious, it's a truism that's so obvious about human existence. We all have that in common. Okay. And are we all in touch with our dukkha? Of course not. That's why it was put forward as a teaching. If it were, we wouldn't need a special teaching to wake us up to how important it is. Because in the Buddhist teaching, the first noble truth that there is suffering in life, there is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, all those nuances, is not bad news. It's news. It's true news. And it's the, considered the gateway to liberation. It's not a, bu a bummer. You know, something, Buddhism, uh, is just very pessimistic and uh, that's first noble truth. They didn't go any further, whoever says that. I think the Pope misread it a little bit, sorry to say. He had a, he was trying to be very conciliatory to all the religions, including Buddhism, and uh, the way he characterized it seemed, I don't know what he was reading, probably someone, I was just a bit off. Um, so knowing what, what we're feeling is a big step towards freeing ourselves. Um, to be able to know that in this moment I'm suffering uh, is a big step because then you're real. That's exactly what is happening. If you're living as if it isn't happening, but it is happening, what is that? How could that possibly work? Okay. Uh, the third foundation was uh, then it gets really juicy, the mind itself, all the different mind states. Uh, and of course, we've already been talking about them. Whatever happens to the body, whatever the feelings we have, the mind, mental formations, they come in. The main ones that we're alerted to attend to are greed, hatred, and delusion. What's it like when the mind is filled up with wanting? What's it like when the mind doesn't want anything, when it's just content? It's a very, very different consciousness. What's it like when the mind is aversive, angry, uh, annoyed, trying to get away from something? What's it like when the mind is just very accepting and loving? It's a very different consciousness. 
and then delusion, greed, hatred, and delusion. What's it like when the mind is confused, ambivalent, in conflict, dark? What's it like when the mind is bright, simple, clear, even radiant? That's what the Buddha says. The nature of the mind finally is, is radiant. So we're getting to know all these mind states. That's self-knowing. But you get to know them as you live. It's not something you get from a book. And you get it on the cushion, but you also get it wherever you are. Because the mind is part of living. Okay, now, then, this is a, a scheme. It's a kind of a curriculum that I think the Buddha puts forward. So let's say we're getting better at knowing all these old bones. Is getting better at knowing the nature of the body, uh, feelings, and the mind. It's and this is where the pure vipassana part comes in. Is beginning to see that whatever it is we've become more familiar with, more at home with, our body, etc. We begin to see that its nature is to arise and to pass away, and that it's empty of any uh, su substantial enduring quality. It's a very important teaching of the Buddha. Okay, now, as you start to see that, and that comes up in choiceless awareness too, everything's arising and passing away. How can you miss it? Nothing, no thoughts stay. No mood remains the same. It's all coming and going. The law of impermanence is parading right in front of us. And as you begin to see it, the letting go starts to become so much easier because it makes no sense to try to fix and fixate a changing world that isn't going to listen to you anyway. You can try to fix things, hold on to things because you like them. They'll be gone anyway, and then you'll be left with ashes. Or you can try to push things away that you're not done with yet. What's that like? Does that really work? So insight into the impermanence and to the empty nature of all phenomena is the crown jewel of the Buddha's teaching. If you get to see impermanence, you can't miss emptiness. Emptiness doesn't mean that it's a hallucination or that it's not there. It means that the forms that exist are not there in quite the way in which we think they are. They're there, but they're tentatively there, held together by certain causes and conditions, and those causes and conditions themselves are impermanent, and as they change, that which you took to be solid also changes. But it was there. An example. At Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, we had a major renovation uh, last year. Now, for 15 years, I lived on the top floor. That was my home. My apartment was on the top floor of the uh, meditation center. And at a certain point, fortunately, we outgrew, we needed a much larger space for people to sit in. And so I was kicked out. That's what I mean was fortunate. Uh, so I could live in just a normal apartment somewhere, which is wonderful. Okay. Um, and so I did. I was kicked out. My wife and I were kicked out. We left, and we happily moved about seven minutes away. And I wasn't around for a while. I, you know, I saw the different stages of the rebuilding, the renovation, or as they call it, reconfiguration. Um, and then towards the very end, it was just, and it finally was done. I saw it close to the end, but not close enough. And then one day I walked in, and it was done. And it's this very large, I mean, it's large enough. It's not as large as this. I think beautiful hall. Uh, some of you know it. And that was my apartment. And there was nothing that was recognizable. Even the windows were all different. It was. I found it was a, there was a period of a few minutes of disorientation. It was sort of a, a grasping at air. Now, was my apartment a hallucination? No, it had a certain reality. 
it was a home for 15 years, a very good one. And I used it well and appreciated it. And you know, you develop, you make it into an apartment. You come, come back to a place day in and day out. You imbue it with a certain richness, a reality, uh, a comfort. You arrange things so that they're the way you want them. You need a place to uh, just to be by yourself from time to time. And so it served me well. It was a home. But that home was to some degree put together by my mind and the combination of conditions that created what is known as an apartment. And that at a certain point, that was all demolished. And now something else is there which is just as real and just as valuable. Well, because my apartment was empty. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. It was empty of an autonomous, independent existence. Now, what the Buddha is saying is our mind is like that, too. And I think you can see it. We're, uh, you know, we put together uh, these enclosures that are strung together through thoughts and pictures and self-images, which is not self-knowing. By the way, very important point. I think probably we'll end with this. Self-knowing is not self-image. And also, there's a very important distinction. And here's where I feel that self-knowledge or self-knowing uh, perhaps begins to differ from uh, in the Buddhist approach than in some other approaches. And I, there's no need to specify, because you know, not, that's not what's important. When you see the, uh, the emptiness, emptiness is not, it's, it's liberating. By the way, IMS is empty too. I don't know how to break it to you. It once was a, uh, a kind of a very wealthy person's home. Then it became a Catholic seminary. And now it's a Buddhist meditation center. Great. It cannot last forever because nothing does. So I don't know what's next. A mall or, you know, <laughs> I don't. So, but something's going to be next. Maybe in a few hundred years. Maybe not. Okay. If you keep coming, it'll last longer. <laughs> also, I, if you don't come, I'll have to get an honest job. <laughs> so I hope you keep coming. Um, here's th the last point I'd like to kind of squeeze in tonight. Who am I? Know thyself. Self-knowledge. We all, I think everyone in this room uh, doesn't have to be convinced that that's valuable, that's useful, that ignorance, uh, it's not bliss. Maybe it is, but uh, finally the price that's paid for not understanding yourself and not that which is synonymous with not understanding how to live. How could somebody who doesn't understand themselves live fully, flower as a person, be free, wise, kind? How could that be? It makes no sense. Uh, to begin with, a lot of the guidance towards knowing, and I was doing it earlier in the, the, in the first couple of talks, uh, suggesting more than once, if you think back, that you can learn a lot about yourself from your yogi job, from uh, take a look at your room, how do you lay out your clothes, and how do you dress, and what an attitude, and uh, that there's a daily life here on retreat. And you kind of can uh, put your house in order here, and perhaps that will help you put your house in order when you get back home, uh, as you begin to take a look at how you actually live. You can do it here easily. Things are slowed down, protected, quiet. How do I actually live? Well, each situation is showing you how you live because it, you're expressing, you're putting your signature on it. Now, so a lot of what we learn is about the self in the most ordinary use of that. It's who I am. Oh, I thought I was a really kind person, but it said only take one cookie, and I took six. <laughs> you know, a certain image comes crashing down. Some of you have pointed out in group that certain images of myself have crashed. I've just seen that, and that's painful. Okay, now, th there's a certain kind of self-knowledge, knowing who I am, that is it's the same as the common sense use of that. It would overlap with a lot of good therapy as well. That as you, 
you find out about the functioning of the self. And a lot of what is being said is, in a sense, how to enable that self to live a bit better. Now, sometimes it can go too far where, well, not too far, too far from a Buddhist point of view, where it's as if you're trying to perfect that self, that me. Um, I don't think it's possible. It's a sinking ship, the ego, that is. There's no way that the ego can ever be fully satisfied and ever satiated and ever content and ever feel really secure. Just listen in on your own mind and you'll see how it's reassuring itself much of the day. I'll do, if I sit more, then I'll really feel great. I'll get rid of it. Well, why does it have to reassure itself so much if it's so solid? Because it isn't solid. And so it's talking itself into some, and then identifying with this. If I, if I join, if I become a Buddhist, if I believe in emptiness, then I'll feel I'm part of the gang. And I'll feel secure. How many million Buddhists are there in the world? And then I'm one of them now. Those are okay, but clearly provisional. Okay, so a lot of this self-knowledge at first is just practical, kind of street know-how, bodily know-how, how to care for yourself, how to, how to live ordinary life. But if that's what a self-knowing is, it's rather limited because finally, what the Buddha is saying is, and I would say the job of vipassana teachers. There's a lot of things that we're all trying to do together. It's the practice. It's the methods and techniques. First of all, how can you know yourself if you don't have a mind that's, that's capable of knowing? So a lot of our work is to get the instrument ready. And we, we are the instrument. So that a lot of the practice is to equip the mind so that it really can know itself. It can see with discernment. Even just seeing doesn't necessarily change your life. A lot of the Buddhist teachings on aging, sickness, and death, you probably all know, it's a, a very uh, core part of what the Buddha was teaching. And much of it was taught so that we would understand that we don't have forever, so that we put our priorities in order. We'd come more and more to have a natural connection with our, the fact that we don't have forever, that we must age and die, and that this can have a very positive effect in terms of valuing that we are alive right now and how we relate to each other, see how precious it is to be alive. And of course, if you're a practitioner, if you're a yogi, is to really put energy into that. Okay, so the, the, pra the practices that we do are designed to do that. And so we intentionally contemplate death, we contemplate aging, and among the ancients, and it's done nowadays too, not, so, not as often, you actually observe a corpse that was done by, by the yogis then in ancient India, and not only in India, so that it would come home to you, it would really be true. But there was not just mindfulness, there was also discernment, panya. Satipanya is the, the cutting edge of our practice. It's not just a vacant stare or a gaze, it's a looking with a keen interest. What is this? Not the words, what is this? but a keen interest. Because if you don't have that, you can be exposed to death all the time and not be wise and not get free. Morticians are around death all the time. I don't think they're a particularly enlightened group. Or doctors are faced and nurses are faced with death day in and day out. Often what happens is we protect ourselves so the seeing is selective. So what real self-knowledge is liberating, but in order to see clearly, we're equipping the mind to be able to do that. If you've just started to practice, your capacity for seeing is probably not quite the same as somebody who's been practicing for 30 years. They're seeing, it's like they have a prescription that fits. Their glasses work, or are better. And so that refinement process, perhaps it's lifelong, I don't know. But from the point of view of Dharma, uh, I think the job, for us as practitioners, but also the degree to which we're helpful as, as teachers, and link that to choiceless awareness. It's not whether we're trying to help you see who you are. It's trying to help you see who you aren't. Because uh, at a certain point, what becomes really interesting is not 
getting to see your personality uh, even more clearly, the story of me and my life, that ongoing melodrama, and adding new chapters to it, revising the old ones, but beginning to see that whatever it is that appears in the mind that represents you, it, that isn't it. It's, it's, a, it's a thought, a representation. We aren't an object. We just, we are. In other words, as you go deeper and deeper, everything else is a representation, the way a photograph represents something. It's not it or a statue. Well, stay with photograph. Um, a representation is something that points to something else. So thoughts and images that say, this is me, they're thoughts and images. And as they fall away, and that takes you on an interior journey, more and more what you experience is the isness of who you are. And the job of the practice and for teachers is, when you're ready, is more and more, uh, what, it, what do you mean, uh, non-attachment, not identifying? What is that all, where's that going? That means you stop nourishing the old ways of selfing, the old ways of keeping, beefing up the ego, keeping it alive and well. And when you stop identifying, particularly with the mind, and liberation is freedom from your own mind, then what starts to happen? All those representations of yourself are seen as exactly that. There's something that characterizes you. They're not you. And as they fall away and fall away and fall away, it's like sawing yourself off a branch or a tree. Or in Zen, they say, jumping from the top of a 100-foot pole. Finally, there's nothing left but you. You're forced to be yourself. And what a relief, even if you just get a, a little taste of it. Okay. Can we have a few moments of silence? <laughs>